five, scores! Rick Vaughn. We've decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Vaughn, Gary Madden. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone. Episode 91 of the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan. Joining me as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vive. Squid, how are we keeping? Pretty good, Mike. Uh, no golf for three days because we're punching our greens, unfortunately. But uh, I'll be out tomorrow. And, uh, boy, I'll tell you, looking at that, I wish I could turn my body that far for my golf swing as I did with my slap shot, but <laughs> yeah, well, you were a little younger then too, by the way. So the body moved a little, body moved a little differently in those days. Hey, right? you're only Forty years younger. <laughs> yeah, you got to you got to remember that. Okay, I feel the same way myself. Put my shoes on in the morning, so I just got back from uh, Florida last night. So no Leafs playing in Florida anymore. So we're here, and our guest today. We're very happy to have on with this. Was taken 31st overall, which was the second round by the Oilers in 1995 draft. Played 695 games over a 14-year career with stops in Phoenix, Pittsburgh, and Montreal. Amassed 153 points along with over 1,100 penalty minutes and became one of the most feared competitors during his time. He's also dabbled. I think there's nothing this guy hasn't done. He's dabbled in politics, sports commentary. I hear he had a radio show. we got to ask him about this, a dating show on the radio. This is a new one in the introduction I'm just picking up. Um, Battle of the Blades, a published author. We've got the book right here. So uh, anyway, we'll show that in a minute. So please welcome to the Squid Notably Fan Show, George Larocque. George, first off, thanks for joining us today. And how you doing? Awesome. Uh, just got in Vegas and... Uh... It's awesome to be part of uh, the Rick Vibe show. And don't forget me, the Ultimate Leaf fan, Mike Wilson. You got to talk about me too, George. Come on. Yeah, yeah but, but Mike, I only came in because Rick Vibe asked me. And I, know. I told him, when a legend asks you for something, you can't say no. That's absolutely correct. Now, you'll know that I'll see. Now, you're going to be at the card show this year? Uh, yes, yes. The expo? Uh, okay, I, you, I, I said there last year. I'll be there on the, uh, the last day because I have a sport partnership with Mint, Mint Inc. But uh, I own a sports card in Naval in Montreal, right? For years now. So I've been oh. collectible for years. So I know all about collectible business because I've been doing that since I'm 13 years old. So I have a huge oh, business wow. down in Montreal. So uh, I've been collecting for years. So I, I just, I, I love that stuff. It's, it's so relaxing and it's a huge passion. Well, that's where I got my name from is the collection I had. So they call me that because I had this Maple Leaf collection. ESPN gave me this name. I didn't give that name to myself. But so that's where I got it. Well, I'll come over and see you at the uh, show this year because I'll be this year because I usually have my book or Rick will be there. So we'll come over and talk to you. Now, that's one of the things you're, you're, you're keeping me with today. But I got to ask you this before we get any further. No more talk of an ECHL comeback, is there? <laughs> no, I, it wasn't. First of all, it was not an ECHL comeback. It was I, one game. I know and the thing is, you know, you guys probably all heard about what happened uh, with the Avery thing. Yeah. Avery is the only player in the NHL that, that did a racial slur at me. And he had oh. never apologized. He's never apologized for it. Oh, and really? What I wanted to do, yeah. So, what I wanted to do, I'm not going to jump on anyone. Like, people thought I was going to kill him, jump on. No, I, I, a way to fix something is I wanted to force to have a conversation with him to give him an opportunity to apologize. So that's why I thought this game thing 
was going to bring a platform to talk about racism in sport. That's why I agreed to go there and to do this. Ah, okay. And but it was never about fighting or any of that stuff because if that game happened, I get to meet him one on one because he still hasn't all those years. I think it happened in about 2003 or something like that. It was in LA, and uh, I'll never forget about it. And uh, to this day, he's never apologized. Ah, oh, wow! Well, you know, that's Sean, that's Sean Avery for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you clarified that because the way we saw it, it was just so funny because there he was bragging online about getting, coming back to make a pro comeback. And all of a sudden you dropped on and said, you know, I just want one game. So, of course, everybody immediately thought, here, you're just going to give it yeah. to you. Gonna, it was no, but you, can't, but you know, I've, the job that I've done over my career, I've always been so honorable. So jumping on someone, a fault doesn't excuse another fault, right? I would not look like the smart guy if I jump on a guy smaller than me because of something happened in the past. Me it was all about conversation and about having that platform to talk about it. But Fantastic. it was, but I know people had a lot of fun with it and yes. the way this came out and it, it was like a circus before it even happened. Burnaby jumped in on that too. I saw so that. It looked like, and, and, and I bet you that half the guys that were retired we want to play that game to play against <laughs> <laughs> Well, now, now, um, George, you still live in, is Edmonton still home? Are no, I, I live in Montreal full time. Do you but, live in Montreal? Uh, but, but because I have twins, I have kids in Edmonton, I go back and forth all the time. But I'm primarily in Montreal. Okay, so let's let's go back to the beginning here. Screen goes, your parents immigrated to Canada from Haiti. You were born yeah. in Montreal. I mean, the obvious answer to the question I'm going to ask is, uh, because of the province you were living in the city you're living did hockey just become, become part of the culture for you and you just wanted to join that and that's how you started playing well it, it surely wasn't the culture of my parents my parents knew nothing about hockey they didn't play hockey they didn't watch it when they came yeah. to montreal they hated the winter i was born in december <laughs> so i was a kid that was out in t-shirt and shorts outside uh, rolling in the snow when they thought i was crazy and you know, if you're born in Montreal and you don't play hockey, you look like a you look like well, an alien. Meant, yeah. With all the other kids, yeah. you have to play hockey. If you don't, yeah. you you get you get bullied because people are like, "What are you doing? Not playing hockey, right?" So, like everyone, I started playing hockey on the street as a kid, playing skating in the parks, and and I wanted to be on teams. And at a young age, I told my parents I was going to play in the NHL. They had no idea what that was. They didn't know yeah. what that meant. They didn't even they didn't even know that you could play hockey for a living. <laughs> they didn't want me to play. They, they, they do nothing about that sport. So it's just that something that I had to do on my own, learn on my own, because they weren't going to teach me how to, to, to skate. They didn't go to the park with me. They didn't have skate. They knew nothing of it. So uh, it, it, it was crazy. If you look at my role to make it to the NHL, is so unorthodox because I didn't have the support of anyone. Uh, I had to do it on my own because nobody wanted me to play. So you learned you learned everything on your own, George. Like when you got on the ice, you learned how to skate on your own, and then eventually started playing minor hockey uh, all on your own. Yeah, it's because what happened, Rick, is when I was a kid, um, you know, there's so much racism because back then. Mm -hmm. well, so the fact that my parents didn't know hockey, when they brought me to the rink and they were listening to this, they're like, "What is this sport?" Why are they doing this? So my parents, they didn't want to be at the ring because there's so many racism. My parents didn't want to fight with everyone. So at when I was five years old, it wasn't so bad. But at nine and 10, that's when it started to be really bad. Mm. So parents, my parents were like, you know what, George, if you want to play hockey, you're going to have to go on your own. We can't go to the rink anymore. There's too much racism. When they said that to me, they thought I was going to quit. 
And then I was like, no, I'm not quitting. I have something to prove to everybody who was calling me the N-word, right? So they're like, go on your own. So in the winter, I go on my bike to the rink. Everybody would laugh at me. Everybody, my bicycle at the rink, everybody knew it was my bike. I left it there and, and I had to go down my own. And I suffered like racism on my own all throughout my minor hockey. And I have a, I have a mission in my head. I have, to, I have to make it to the NHL. And it's crazy because when I was a kid, I'd score 100 goals a year. Like I was a goal scorer. I never, fighting never even crossed my mind. So <laughs> even people that saw me play, they, like to know the job that I end up doing, it's just that when puberty hit me, man, man, I became a monster. And then I had to add some things to my game to make sure I can make it to the NHL. But, but as a kid, I never, it never even crossed my mind I was going to even fight once in the NHL. That's how uh, good I was, how talented that I was. And then, uh, you know, when you get big and then you're not faster than everyone anymore, and you're not the most skilled, the strongest, then you're like, okay, one and one is two. I know what I have to do in junior hockey to get drafted in the NHL and what I'm going to have to do, what I'm going to have to add to my game. Otherwise, my career is going to stop at junior hockey. So, again, all the negative, negative, negativism that I had to live when I was a kid, it was in the back of my mind, and I was like, I'll do whatever it takes to make it in the NHL to prove everyone that called me the N-word that they were wrong. So I had a mission to everyone that was racist towards me, that were attacking me, and towards my parents that told me that I was never going to, like, they wanted me to quit. They told me every year to quit, that it wasn't good. School was more important. And my no, dad, no. when he did interviews, my dad said, my son gave us a lesson. My, my son, at 10 years old, he did something we never thought he could. He did it on his own. And I don't know how many hockey players could say that. Usually, usually the, there's the nice story about the parents bringing you early in the morning, be behind you every single day. Me, it wasn't like that. Well, I had to walk uphill both ways, like three miles. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, did have to, I did have to walk a few times, though, because my, my father would be working. But... Uh, what, what years were that when you were talking about? Because I remember when I went to South Carolina to coach in 1993, and I'm there for about two weeks, and I turned the TV on, and the leader of the Ku Klux Klan in South Carolina is on, tri on trial. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This stuff's still going on? Like, yeah. I mean, I couldn't believe it. It was like – See, was in your crazy. time – in your in your time, Rick, it was even crazier. Like, because we all, like, a lot of people saw the Willow Ori story. Back in your time, being a black person playing hockey was dangerous. Me, we're talking about in 1986, that it was pretty bad. And also, I live in a urban city outside right. of Montreal, an hour from Montreal, and we were the only black family there. So some people, some oh. kids, when they saw me, it's like they saw E.T. It was the first black person they'd ever seen, right? And the fact that I played hockey too, you're talking about the sport that black people didn't play, um, it was not good. And on top of that fact, my parents didn't want me to play. I had to get gears on my own. So what I had to do, I had, like while all the kids were playing hide and seek on the street and playing different games, I was cutting neighbor's grass. I was like, in the winter, I was shoveling snow to the neighbors. And I did that so I could buy used gears so I could play hockey. Because my parents, if they didn't want me to play, they weren't going to support me buying stuff. So I learned, I think I Seven years old, I knew how to put oil in, in the lawnmower, gas, everything. Like, I had to grow so fast as an adult to work 
so I could buy stuff, my own gear, so I could play hockey. Mm -hmm. So it, may, it, it grew my character pretty strong. And I became pretty strong because of that, because, you know, I had to learn how to work. I was a workaholic as a kid because I was like, I was growing so fast and I needed equipment and, and it was insane. And my parents didn't know what equipment to get anyway. And when it was my birthday, I would ask for a piece of equipment that, that was getting too small for me. So it was all about the process to be making it to the NHL. And that's why it's like my story, the road to making it and stuff, it shows you that, you know, it doesn't matter any obstacle you have in life. If you if your mind is straight into something, you really want to accomplish something, you could do it. And the only person that could stop you is yourself, not your friends, not your parents, anyone else. There's so many people that live their dream through with their surroundings, people around them and stuff that tell them what to do, what they should and not should not do. Clearly, um, I'm an example of that. If you really want to achieve something, you can. Nothing, yeah, I, nothing's there to stop you. I think I have to 100% agree with you there. I mean, I, I was on a podcast and a guy was talking to me and I, you know, I said, look, I said, and that was the reason I wrote my book was I think most fans think that, you know, you're, if you're in the NHL or the NBA or, or Major League Baseball, that your life was great and everything is rosy, right? Well, you know, that's not necessarily true. And I, I mentioned, I said on there, I said, everybody has obstacles. And the people that are able to get over, around, or through those obstacles are the ones that are going to have success. And obviously, you know, you're one of those guys that had to go through that. I went through that uh in many different ways but um there's always obstacles and if you're not willing to get over them or around them or through them then you're not going to be have success and 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 if you're looking at that to be playing the nhl what you've done rick and and all our fellow brothers that, that made it to the nhl if you talk about obstacle we had millions of obstacles because every year we had somebody that wanted our job that wanted our spot that wanted to take our mm -hmm. head off there's competition in there there's only a few select that make it to the NHL. Yeah. So when talking about the obstacle in professional sport, there's nothing any bigger than that. People that are listening to us right now that have dreams, I'm pretty sure that the majority of them is not to be a professional athlete. Just know that any obstacle you guys have that you want to achieve is nothing compared to what people in professional sport do. So if I was able to go through the obstacle, Rick was able to break through the obstacle to make it to the NHL, all of you guys listening to us right now that have dreams, the odds of achieving your dreams is already easier than our odds because mm -hmm. professional sport, there's genetics, there's so many things that comes into play uh, to also make it because it's not just work ethic. There's many things that comes in effect. There's also a chance factor. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. there's good players that had bad coaching and didn't get yep. their chance. There's so many things that happens that everything has to be aligned perfectly. Yep. Outside of sports, if you have a dream and you really work at it, you have way better chance to achieve them than me and Rick even did. Because Rick, to this day, what me and you did was clearly impossible. If you look at the odds as a kid, Rick, when you were a kid, to say you're going to be a legend in the NHL and score, have the 50-goal season that you had, it'd be no, next mean, one. The odds would be 0.001%. You didn't look at the odds as a kid and said, oh, the odds are too small. I'm going to study to be a doctor or something else. No. You're like, screw it. I'm going to go persevere. Well, I'm going to fight through it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think that was probably one of my biggest assets was I, I wanted it so bad that I wasn't willing to give up. I just said, no. I mean, I remember getting on the plane 
when I went to Sherbrooke when I was 17 years old. And in PEI, they don't have the gates and everything. They just, you walk out, you go up the stairs and onto the plane. And I'm st- sitting on the plane waving to my parents and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I will never be back here to live full time again because I'm going to make it. And <laughs> I made up my mind on that day and, and sure as hell, I, I worked my ass off to get there and, and it all came to fruition. And, and, you know, but you don't get there without working your tail off and overcoming those obstacles. And, and uh, yeah. you know, it's, it, uh, it's amazing what people have to do to get to the majors in any sport, really, when you think and about you know, it. I, and you know what's crazy, too? Uh, when we do all those charity events, hockey, also homeless, hockey for Alzheimer's, all mm-hmm. these things, there's many people who play hockey against that are our age. They talk about yeah. the role that how they they, they didn't have the will to make it. Like they played hockey, but they didn't work hard enough. They had regrets. Yeah. I wish, I wish I tried harder. I wish I did this. I wish I did that. Like this, the difference between people who played hockey with and people that succeeded because working hard is not enough. You have to, yeah. you can't just work hard. You have to work harder than the neighbor, the, the, the guy next to you. Because when you go as a kid, when you go like this, it goes like this. There's less and less spot that are there. And then you have to be the one that they pick. So to do that, you have to be a hundred times better than the guy next to you. You can't just complacent and be okay because there's no, always right. a battle every year. Even your friends are not your friends. They're your enemy because they want your spot. And once you yeah. want to play pros, you know how it is. You battle all the time to make your spot and nobody's putting on a platter for you. Well, well, well George, let's go, let's, let's go this. Uh, you, know, you spent a couple, go back to the queue. You spent a couple years in St. Okay. John. Then you, uh, your draft year, you came up. You got taken by Edmonton. First, a couple of things I'd like to go through with you here. Their draft year, were you hearing any chatter about somebody taking you? Secondly, as part of all of that, from the look of your numbers, and you touched on it earlier, you made a conscious decision to be, everybody was catching up to you skill-wise and speed and all that, and you got to be a big guy. You started be, taking the physical part of your game more to, to be noticed, I guess, and make, make it. Put all that together, and then when you got drafted and it ended up in the camp with Edmonton, your first week arriving there and how everything went. Well, uh, you know, junior hockey just before the draft, that's when you have to make a decision um, because now you're so close to your dream, right? Because yeah. there's many guys that, that have great hockey junior career, and then after that, that's it. It's over. But this is the time that you know that you have two years to get drafted in the NHL, and this is it. The scouts every game, and then you got to – make your branding right now. And I remember a coach coming up to me because fighting was never inside of me. I, I wasn't a, a, a angry person. So coach went up to me, I was playing junior hockey is like, George, you know, if you don't fight, you can have a great career junior. Because obviously if you're a big guy, you play against 16, 17 year old guy. I was 240 pounds junior. So I could overpower guys. And he was like, if you want, if you want to have a good career junior, you can, but if you want to play in the NHL, you're going to have to fight. And I kind of knew that a bit when he said that, it really hit me. So I started hiding, fighting to my game. And then I, I was uh, rated to be, uh, to be drafted at, at the end of the first, beginning of the second, which I went with Edmonton, beginning of the second. But uh, it was crazy because I'll never forget in Edmonton, uh, I was there a couple of days before because, you know, team that they do interviews. And I met about 10 teams and, and they were doing steroid testing on me. Uh, because they were like, it's impossible that you could be this big, this strong naturally. And you know what's crazy about that is when I was doing the steroid test, and I loved it because 
I was like, man, this is such a compliment. I'm 17 years old. NHL teams, I'm, they think I'm doing steroids when I'm not. So it, it's a comp. I was taking it as a compliment. But the worst thing happened is I remember when I was peeing in a cup, there was a guy that was watching me. And I wanted to call him a, pe- a fucking pedophile. He was like, the fuck? Why is he watching me pee in a cup? I understood later that because, you know, some athletes use wisdom eater and stuff, right? Yeah. I'm 17. I don't know what that is. I just look at a guy look at me peeing. I was like, why is he looking at my cock? Are you kidding me? So I was asking my agent, man, what's going on? Why are they looking at me? Is that they never seen a black cock before? And they explained to me why they were doing it. So anyway, I did all these steroid testing. I got drafted early by Edmonton. And, and, and it was awesome because it was, it was in Edmonton that the draft. So the crowd, like, they cheered every Edmonton draft. And, uh, but I did something very stupid. After I was drafted, the trainer came up to me and was like, so George, uh, what number would you like to have? And I was like, 99. No, 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 not, not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm stupid, but not retarded. So I said number 27. So when I said that, he was like, oh yeah, I'm keeping it for you. I didn't know why he said it. Like that. So I was like, this is my, have I had that, that number of my career? I knew nothing about Dave. So anyway, I go back in the dress room and stuff, and people started talking about how I took number 27, and I met Dave. And when I find out that Dave Semenko was a legend that protected Gretzky, I understood why they were all talking about me. There's like, this cocky kid is coming, and you think he's going to replace Dave Semenko. Imagine the pressure I put on myself. Junior kid that has to take his visor off. And now I took 27 number of Semenko. and was like, come on, go honor that number now. And now I put all those that pressure on me and everybody in Edmonton what number 27 was, man, I wanted to change my numbers so much after that, but it was too late because I already picked it. And uh, I'm glad that, 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 I did, that I did good with his number, that I honored him. But as, as a 17-year-old kid, you know, you don't know how your career is going to be. You don't know the yeah. reputation that you're going to have, right? So uh, it, was, uh, it was insane, but uh, I'm glad it worked out. Well, so you-, you, guys, you guys are playing Granby and win a Memorial Cup, correct? Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, my last year junior, my last year junior, um, average a point a game. It's to show you again how playing junior and pros is two different things. Uh, because it was easy. Like uh, as a nine, as a 19-year-old when you drafted, you should have a point a game. So anyway, the Quebec hasn't won the Moral Cup in 25 years. Last time was with the Rampart with Guy Lafleur that just passed away. Yeah. And when we won it, it, it was just amazing. And it was amazing for me because I knew it was my last year of junior. Because junior is the best year of your life. Because once you turn pro, the mm-hmm. fun is done. The yeah. fun is done. The pressure is on. And then now it's like you have to win. Business of winning. The pressure of keeping your spot every year. And it's not the same thing. Junior, you go to school. There's no afternoon nap. You go to you do your course. You go play a game. In the NHL, man, it's like it's another level. And uh, even to this day, even though I had a great 13-year career, I. I can honestly say that my junior years were the most fun one. Yeah, I would agree with you on that for sure. I mean, because once you get to the pros, I at 19, I I left my last year junior to go play in the WHA. And and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, you figure out it's work. Like it's, yeah. it's not fun anymore. I mean, you got to go out there and work. And, and I mean, it's, yeah, the fun's over, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, George, so you end up your first preseason fight is the game. Well, you didn't pick any small guys, that's for sure. You had done a brochure. So were you letting the staff know right off the bat? And I'm going to ask you two questions here. 
you're letting these guys know right away, I'll do what it takes to stay, obviously. But secondly, your first regular season fight was against Calgary's Todd Simpson, I believe. Now, was that by design in your part, knowing the rivalry between Edmonton and Calgary, so you thought I might as well go all in here and make this really worthwhile? Well, when you're a rookie, right, and you're up and down because I was playing Hamilton, the farm, right. the, the farm yeah. team, and then, and then I get called a couple times, you have to make your mark, right? Because at that time, Bill Ewart was there, Marty McSorley, they were getting older, Louis DeBras was there, and I was the up and coming. And then, you know, I had to show the team that, you know, I could be the guy and you don't need any of these guys anymore. Their time has passed. It's crazy, but that's how you have to look at it. You you're a gladiator. Yeah. You're a yeah. gladiator. You want to be the main guy. So to me, the main guy, you're going to take everyone. So what is Probert, Twist, everybody at every game, I had the sweat the night before. I was like, okay, who's playing on that game? I got to take him. I got to take him. I got to take him. Because you want to make a name for yourself. Yeah, and then that's why it's like when I fought Brashear and then Thompson, I fought him because I hit Jamie Allison in a corner. I'll never forget it. And then he came to defend his, his defenseman. And then we fought. It's just that when you make a good name for yourself, which I was able to do, yeah. then people, they fear you. Then you don't have to do it as much. Because the guys that were amazing at that job, they didn't have to fight more than 10, 11 times a year because people feared you. After my name was done, honestly, I had tough guys in the warm-up come up to me and say, George, tonight, I promise you I won't hit anyone. Please don't fight me. Please. <laughs> and then when they would say that, my job was done. I was so Absolutely. happy. I was like, a break tonight. I'm just playing hockey and that's it. nothing. Because you're there for that reason. For the stars player like Rick who played the game without anyone abusing them physically, nobody putting the glove in their face and just playing and having a 50-goal season or whatever, right? You're there for that, to protect your team. But when you have a good reputation, nobody wants to fight you. So what that does is people, they don't want to take liberty against your star players because mm -hmm. they don't want me to do the same. So what I, And it's awesome, but yeah. to get to that level, you have to have a good reputation. And to do, you have to take on everyone. And once well, you do and you start hurting guys, then guys are like, okay, there's 30 teams in NHL. I'll take liberty with the other 2019, but George's team, I'll leave him alone. Well, we had Bernie Nichols on. I remember this one, Squid. Bernie Nichols on told us one time, Wendell. Now, Marty McSorley was going after Doug Gilmore during the play uh, during the playoffs. So Wendell went up to Bernie Nichols and said, "Listen, you tell McSorley to stay away from Gilmore. I'm coming. You're next. You're my fucking target." He goes, "What do you mean? I didn't do anything." He says, "You're the guy. So you get him out." And he went, "Oh yeah." And he went right over to McSorley to leave Gilmore alone, and he did. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and that that was along the same lines. So now let me ask you this: you now you land your job in Edmonton, the team wasn't terrible. Um, playing for that team, and you obviously started to realize that this was a pretty good sports team at the success of the Oilers and the Eskimos. Did the team feel sort of the ghosts of the past, overhanging them with the Gretzkys and all those guys, and that the, the winning culture that had been planted in that city make it a little tougher to play? Well, the, the thing is, is that, you know, the time that Wayne was there, Messier and all these guys, they had an all-star team. Mm -hmm. I think 11 guys went to the all-star game and, and it was insane. So when this boy club connection kind of went all over the place and Messier went to New York, Wayne, and everybody left, right? After that, you have to remember that we were in the area of no salary cap and a Canadian team that had no money. Our team, that's it. That's right. After that, we were a hard-working team, four-line team that couldn't afford to get big players. And then we were making the playoff almost every year. 
and this couple of times we didn't, but we were very close. But it was pride because if you look at salary cap rise, we're always in the low end team because we don't have any money. When Daryl Cates came, the owner, and he got Chris Pronger, it got us to the Stanley Cup final because we never were able to afford a player like that before because we couldn't afford it. To, and then we were battling with teams like Dallas that they had unlimited payroll and, and all these teams that had more money than we did. And we even flew commercial in the beginning. Think about it. Most team had charters. Because I was a rookie, we flew commercial. We get normal tickets. The veteran would always put me in the middle because they get the aisle seat first. And sometimes I'd be in the middle in the three, four-hour flight. Commercial. And we changed flight. It was horrendous when you know what the charter is after. But we had to save money. So that's the team that we were. So, you know, we're taking a lot of prize when we made the playoff because we were like, even when we beat Detroit, you look at the payroll that they had was much higher than we were. We could never afford some of the guys that they had, but Oilers hockey, what hard-nosed hockey that, you know, every four-line team hitting, grinding, and we were, we were like tearing down other team was a physical play because this is what we had. This is what, how we have to play to have success because wouldn't have as much skills as some other team would have. Okay, George, how the hell do you fit in a middle seat on a, on a regular <laughs> plane? Okay. Oh, man. You know, sitting so many times I, I was sweating. I was between two – you know, you're wearing a suit, a tie, and you're sitting between two large guys in the middle, and I'm like – I couldn't say anything. I was a rookie. But Todd Marchand, which is a, so skinny, he yeah. said in the aisle because he was a veteran – and I'd be, I have to be in the middle. And I was the biggest guy on the team. And I was protecting these guys. I was like, why am I sitting in the middle? But you can, you're not complaining when you're a rookie. You're just happy to be there. You don't say anything. But, uh, yeah, those are the memories that I'll never forget. And then a couple of years into it, when it, it, make, it became mandatory that all the team must charter, I was so happy. Oh, <laughs> More team were, but for us, it was like, what? We're going directly to a city where we're going to play other than two, three connection? You know how many oh. times we miss connection? How many shitty hotel we have to stay because we miss a connection and we have to be in a motel? Like, man, there's so many crazy stories that happen in the time that we're that. commercial, but we have no choice. I went through yeah. that. I remember in Birmingham. Oh, yeah, in the beginning you did. Yeah. Yes. In Birmingham, we flew commercial in the WHA. So you have Edmonton, Winnipeg, Quebec, Hartford, Cincinnati, and Birmingham. Like, we would be a 14-hour day to get to Edmonton or Winnipeg or Quebec City. It was, like, it was unbelievable. And, you know, then we get I get to the NHL, and, and we do a little bit of chartering, but on those small prop planes. And uh, But, like, we never got to charter like they do today or, and, you know, the big planes with the first-class seats and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah. you know what? It was different era. It was different. Yeah. Well, we had cheap owners back then, and uh, yeah. they didn't want to pay for anything like that. But uh, yeah. but I get it. And, I, I, you know, the one thing that – the one thing that makes me really happy watching today's game – is how much power the players have now, George. I, I really love that because I went through an era where we had no power whatsoever. Yeah, and Al Eagleson was the head of our union, and he was like this with the owners, and yeah. they controlled everything. So for me, to see these guys making the money they're making today 
and getting the things that they're getting, I, I think it's awesome because they deserve it. Yeah, but it's because of you guys that we are because you guys paved the way for us uh, uh, to be making that kind of money, all you guys. Rick, what you've done with Wayne and all these guys, the recognition you guys had with the record you guys have done, uh, got hockey more and more popular. And the yep. more popular hockey got, the more revenue came in. And then we just came in at the right time, at a time where you guys already put hockey in the map so high that revenue were higher. So we were yeah. able to benefit from it because of what you guys have done to the game. So thank you. Now, yeah, no problem. I, uh, I enjoyed my career. I made good money relative to the normal person. I'm not going to complain about what I made. The only thing I will say is I didn't have someone to grab me by the throat when I was 19 years old and say, listen, if you put a certain amount away every year, <laughs> fortunately, I, you know, my, my, my accountant would call me and say, Rick, you're spending too much. And I'd say, okay, Dave, I'll, I'll cut back. And I'd cut back for a week or two and then <laughs> go on again. And then two months later, he'd call me again, Rick, you're spending too much. And that was it. That was the advice I got. Yeah. <laughs> well, now, George, speaking of uh, money, you leave Edmonton in the free agency dispute. Now, a couple of things here. You were very popular by that time in Edmonton. You had made roots there. You know, you're probably very comfortable wearing the Edmonton Oiler jersey. How tough was that for you to get up and move and make that decision? Well, I, I didn't want to go anywhere. I wanted to retire in Edmonton. I love the city. I was so involved charity-wise in Edmonton that I wanted to retire there because all the energy I felt every time I fought with the fans and then and, and in the community. I, you know, it's crazy because even though I was born in Montreal, I decided to live in Edmonton all year long. I didn't go back home anymore because I loved Edmonton so much. And my family in, in Montreal were like, what's going on? Why are you staying there in the summer? Why don't you go back home in Montreal? What are you doing in Edmonton? Other than the mall, what is there to do? <laughs> and I was like, you guys don't understand. Living there, community-wise, like, I'll still say it today, I think Edmonton is the best place to live in Canada. Like, it's the best city to live in. I've been everywhere. Like, it, it is unbelievable, like, like, the community to live there and stuff. You, you have to live there to understand. Forget about the cold and, and all that stuff. It, it is just unreal. I embrace that city. So when I became a free agent and then the team didn't want to resign me because um, they, they wanted to go a different direction. I was pretty upset. But at the same time, when I became a free agent, Wayne Grexy called me, another legend like Rick Vide, and he asked me to come and play for him. And again, when Wayne Grexy calls you and asks you to come play for him, you have to. It was yeah. such an honor. Yeah. And then I did, and then I signed in Phoenix after, only after knowing Edmonton didn't want to sign me. So then I, yeah. went, uh, I went to Phoenix uh, to pursue my career. Well, how much of a culture shock, let, let's put it this way, you go from a hockey hotbed in a different sense uh, from uh, Edmonton. First off, grow up in Montreal, uh, go to a hockey hotbed in Edmonton and go to another hockey hotbed, but it was hockey hot weather, not hockey hotbed. <laughs> Just so you know, uh, there's not many things that I regret in life, but going to Phoenix was a mistake. Um, I going to Edmonton, Edmonton every year, we're fighting to, to make the playoffs. And, and ultimate goal to make the Stanley Cup, right? To win the Stanley Cup. In Phoenix, uh, first of all, people don't like hockey down there. So it was, in the stand, it was empty. As a tough guy, when it's empty, the energy when you get into a fight is not yeah. as fun. Uh, our team was out of the playoff in December. I was oh, yeah. used to playing a team that was fighting till the end, right? So 
I wanted to win the cup. I have a chance to win the cup. And going to a team where a lot of people didn't care, the culture was so bad that it has to be traded. Like halfway to the, into, the, into the trade deadline, I was like, and it's crazy because when I played in Phoenix, I was having my best statistic ever. My highest point season, I know uh, um, um, Rick did that in a couple, in couple games, but uh, I had one year, I had 13 goals, 29 points. But in Phoenix, I was going to shatter that. But even though I was going to shatter it, I didn't care about how many points I could get if I stayed there because Wayne got me to play so much. I wanted to play in the playoff, and we're out in December. So I asked to be traded. I had a no-move clause, and then uh, uh, I decided to pick Pittsburgh uh, for my next team that I was going to go to. Uh, also, I knew Michel Therrien. I won the Memorial Cup when he was coaching the Penguins. Yeah. So I had a few teams to pick from, and then I went to Pittsburgh to pursue my career because I wanted to have a chance to play in a playoff because the best part of hockey is playing the playoff. Regular season is great too, but, you know, if you don't play playoff hockey, man, you there's something missing in your career, in your, in your DNA. It is just unreal. It's like a different game. Yeah, it's funny you bring up that Michel Therrien. <laughs> he was coaching Fredericton, or, uh, yeah, Fredericton, Montreal's farm team. I was coaching St. John, which was Calgary's farm team. Now, back then, they had a rule that you dress 16 and 2 unless the coaches agree to dress 17 or 18 and 2. So we had a little more depth, and every time we played Fredericton, Michelle would say, oh, Rick, I, I only have 16 and 2. And I look at the stands, there's about eight guys with suits on, right? <laughs> so every time we play them, I'm getting pit more pissed off. So we're underneath, and he tells me again, it's about the sixth time in a row. I only have 16 and 2. I said, what about the guys in the stands with the suits on? He goes, well, uh, yeah, but they're not playing. I go, well, play them for God's sake, because my my <laughs> boss is getting pissed off at me because I can't play everybody. I mean, I got a bunch of young kids that he, they want playing, and I can't play them because you won't go to eighteen and two. <laughs> he said something, and I I turned around and I said, hey, I said, what did you say? And I he said, never mind. And I and I said, well, you better keep your mouth shut. Because and I know he's tough, but I didn't care. I I would have fought him anyway. <laughs> I think I think I think you would have beat him. He looks tough, but yeah, he, uh, he was not. You you'll still be stronger than him. Remember, you you played in the NHL for years, right? So there's a strength that you have that you yeah, didn't play as long as you did, so you couldn't have. Yeah. Now after uh, Pittsburgh, George, all of a sudden home to Montreal as a free agent. Talk about that. That must have been pretty exciting for you in that time. You know what's crazy is. In Pittsburgh, uh, my second year there, my last year there, we played Detroit. And then we lost in six games Stanley Cup final. Yeah. And then I was like, that's the second time that I lose in the, in the final of Stanley Cup. Uh, the first time was in 2006 with Edmonton against Carolina. We lost game seven, so I'll never forget that. Still regret that day. Anyway, um, I'm a free agent, and now Pittsburgh tried to resign me. And then Sid, Sid Crosby goes to me, he's like, George, I swear to you, if you sign with us, within three years, we're going to win the cup. I didn't listen to him. The, the next year, the Penguins win the cup. Yeah. But the reason why I signed in Montreal, because at that time, um, Edmonton was trying hard to get me back. And I really, and I wanted to go back to Edmonton. My mom, I remember my mom, she called me and she's like, George, she's like, every time you play out West in Edmonton, 
the game starts at 10 o'clock Eastern time, right? Nine, 10 o'clock. <laughs> yeah. So she's like, she's a nurse and she has to get up early. She's like, please play at home. And I was like, <laughs> but I, I don't want to play Muncha. I want to be back in Edmonton. And anyway, for my, it's for my mom that I did it. I, I, I didn't do it because I was a, like I was a Montreal childhood hero and all that stuff. My mom begged me to sign in Montreal, and that's why I did. That's why I did that. I was gonna go back home, and uh, and uh, finish my career in, in in Montreal. Well, she's got a she's got a very good uh, case there, you know, George. Yeah. Because my parents in Prince Edward Island, I got drafted by Vancouver, and they're going. The games don't start till eleven o'clock out here. <laughs> So they, when I got traded to Toronto in my first year, my parents were ecstatic because they were the games would well the games were always at eight o'clock back in the yeah, and then so they would be on at nine o'clock in PEI instead of like midnight I think if if you're in Vancouver, so so that was a big relief for them. Yeah, players always talk to us about life as a Montreal Canadian. It's like being the player of no other team probably in all professional sports. And I'll give you one example here. And we've used this one a couple of times where backup goalie Brian Hayward was in a restaurant in Old Montreal one night. And Mick Jagger was sitting beside him at the table. And the chef came running out and asked for Brian Hayward's autograph and then asked for Mick Jagger's. And Mick Jagger, and he was the backup goalie with the Canadians. And Mick Jagger leaned over to Hayward and said, who are you? He said, oh, I'm Brian Haywood. Uh, well, what do you do? He said, well, I play for the Montreal Canadiens. And he said, I've traveled all around the world and eaten every restaurant around the world you can probably think of. This has never happened to me before. <laughs> Only here. And he, yeah. bought their dinner, and he bought the dinner for him. But anything crazy like that happened to you as a Canadian or stories you oh, can about being a Canadian? See, the, the thing is, the biggest reason why I didn't want to play there is because if you're born in Montreal, you're French, and you play with Montreal, the pressure it is crazy you can't do anything i like my privacy but playing montreal you don't have any especially somebody like me that is outspoken um you know i, I was outspoken i spoke my mind and uh team didn't always like it because they're like guys are so popular that they like you to stay with the political like language i'll give you an example one time you know i wasn't playing because we had too many guys in the fourth line so we were doing a rotation with four players for the fourth line so mm -hmm. the media came up to me they're like so george uh, what do you think about this rotation you guys are doing in the fourth line right because you know like it was each our turn to miss a game so i said other than saying i respect code decision i wait for my time when i'm gonna play and try my hardest and i wasn't like that i always spoke the truth and what i thought and often i got the team in deep water because they didn't like that but i i, I just said if I knew I was going to be a rotation in the fourth line, I would have never signed there. You say something like that in Montreal, it's, for, it's, first, it's front, front page. Front page. Every week at the front page with liners like this. The media, there's so many media in Montreal covering hockey that, make, that, that need like quotes like this because that's their job to get scooped and stuff. That almost every day, the media came up to me to get quotes because I would speak my mind. But the thing is, I'm not Jeremy Roenick. Jeremy Roenick, Patrick Watt could speak his mind. They're all-star players. I'm a fourth liner that speaks his mind. The team <laughs> hated that. Every time I talked to the media, I had the two uh, press relations right beside me to, to see what I was going to say. And sometimes I see them shaking their head about the response that I would give. And I'm like, George, why do you have to say that? Why do you have to go there? I was like, 
I'm, what, what, you, what, you guys want me to lie when I do an interview? Or you guys want me to be, speak the truth? So it was funny because, um, yeah, they didn't like that much. And then also what happened in Montreal for the first time in my career, I got hurt. Um, I remember um, my first, after the physical test and everything, when we practiced, I got a, an herniated disc on my back. And, um, and man, it was crazy because I went to see a doctor and they said, George, you need surgery. And it's a year and a half off. If I did that, my career would have been done. So I just signed a waiver and I took cortisone pill and I played with herniated disc. I played with uh, like hernia in my back and it was so painful and nobody would know why I was always hurt and why I was mixing so many games. But everybody has an hernia on their back, know how much that hurts. And I was taking pills all the time. And the more cortisone you take, the more you need to take. And then I got a second herniated disc on my back too in the first year. And I was dealing with so much pain and I was missing so much game that after a year and a half, eventually I got released. Bob Yenny went there and said, George is too much of a distraction to the team. And in my mind, I was like, I don't know, I'm always a distraction. I'm always in the medical room and I wasn't playing. I was always hurt. I couldn't even do quotes anymore. I was always hurt. But, <laughs> but, but anyway, the fact that I got relief, uh, released was a relief for my health because it was, it's very dangerous. Like, like to, to fight when you have earned this like this, because you never know, you can be paralyzed. Yeah. When someone asks you to sign a waiver to play, that tells you a lot about how the danger that is, right? So that's why I'm fortunate enough that, you know, after 13 years, um, you know, that's the only serious injury that I had. I didn't do anything for a year and, and it resorbed it. I didn't, I didn't need to do any surgery. And then I was fine. And then uh, I've never had to look back at, over back pain again after that, after I got to rest my back for one year. It's funny well, you mentioned the, the back because my uh, youngest boy who's still playing in Cincinnati and he's 6'6", 245. And he's had several, not, he didn't have a herniated disc, but he's had back problems where they've had to go in with a needle with cortisone. And uh, he had it this year too, again. I keep bugging him, well, I mean, you feel for your kids, and I want him to retire. I want him to get into coaching or yeah. go back to Miami, Ohio, as a you know, a, a, an assistant coach, uh, and get his for one semester and get his uh, certificate to be a strength and conditioning coach because those are all the things he took in in college. Yeah, uh, but I mean, he he loves playing. He still wants to play and. You know, what the hell am I going to say to him? I mean, first yeah. of all, six two hundred and forty five pounds. <laughs> Probably just go like this and go, get out of here, Dad. Well, you better have George speak to him because George is about – they're about the same size, okay? Maybe yeah. he'll listen to George. Who wants to now, George, for the listeners, you had a habit of saying to people before a fight, good luck. How did that all – and I've never seen a guy in a fight with a bigger smile on his face than you. How did that well, all – there well, you go right this, there. Well, there's, there's a couple of things. First of all, I hated fighting. I did it because my job, and I was not mad at anyone that I fought. So I knew people had family, they had kids, and why? I don't want anybody to get hurt. Like, I want to win, but the goal was never to anybody to kill anyone. So before every fight, I'd say good luck, and after, it's often the penalty best, I asked the guy if he was okay. Because we're not animals, it's our job, but no. again, it was a way to humanize myself to know that, you know, I'm a human being. I'm doing a tough job, the toughest job in professional sport. But I just wanted to show the guy that I respect him despite what just happened. And the smiling thing 
that's a psychological thing that I was doing. Hockey fighting is all about, it's all mental. It's 90% mental. You got to play with your opponent's head. When you smile before a fight, it shows a level of confidence that gets the opponent to worry. He worries because he looks at you as like, why is he smiling? Why is he so confident? What's going to happen? And he's worried. The metal, metal fight is done. He's already done. He just can't wait this to be done because he's so worried. And I could see it in his eyes. So yeah. I was worried too, but you never show it. I smiled to play in their head and it worked every time. Because when I smiled, they were shaking even more. They're like, oh my God, oh my God, why is he smiling? What, they think it's funny. Look how calm that he is. It was just a metal thing, mental thing that I was using, and it was working so well. Well, George, I, I, I've heard guys say in the past, like the night before a game, and you're playing a certain team, and you know who you're playing against and who you may have to fight. Was that something that, like the night before, is that something that, you thought about and maybe you know didn't sleep as well as you no. could or of course and it depends who it was night before i'll never forget before i played tony twist bob probert donald brisher ty domi i could go on and on Stu grimson matt johnson yeah. i could tell you about 20 guys like this i didn't sleep the night before it was so hard the afternoon nap i'd be sweating i was so nervous that i'd be all wet but I had so much anxiety. I remember um, going to movies a night before games sometimes to relax. I'd watch the screen for two hours and I don't even know what movie I saw because all I would think about is the fight the next day. That's, that's why there's many guys that did the job that I did that went into cocaine, alcohol. The reason why they took that is to take the anxiety out because the anxiety night out and in and out drives you crazy it's hard to explain like think about it to people that are listening to us okay because as often as you guys watch fighting you think it's cool think about the pressure that every night you could die and it crosses your mind and you want you might fight something that kills you and even if there's no fight the next game it doesn't matter the fact that there's a possibility you're thinking about it and there's 80 game in a season all season long the mind is playing tricks on you and then you're on the ice and you wonder if he's going to jump at you at the end of a ship, when it's going to happen, what's going to happen. It is so, it, it is, fighting is harder mentally than physically. Because physically, with the adrenaline kicks in, you don't feel anything until you're sitting in a penalty bench and, and then you realize the damage, whatever, am I hurt, am I, you don't yep. feel anything. The anxiety in your head, what that does, everybody that I've talked to about fighting, I've never That's talked it. to a tough guy that told me that they liked it. Yeah. that loved it that 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 just wrapped up that wasn't nervous they all were we all were and it's normal because we could yeah. die we could die because not just fighting no gloves getting hit in the temple and stuff but at the end of the fight having a 250 guy falling on top of you you can hit your head on the ice and some guys have passed away because of that the yeah. danger is so present it's so there that you know when i was getting to a fight it was not with lightweights it was with heavyweights and even worse than that, I was playing a regular shifts. I was fortunate enough to be a, a guy that played nine, 10 minutes a game. Most of the guys that I fought, they were playing two shifts a game. And yeah. one of them was to fight me. So all their energy was for that fight against me. You know how nerve wracking that is? 
when their only job is to yeah. go and fight me and I think about that, they don't care about the game about anything else. They just want to take my head off. They're looking at clips at me. They're looking at me the entire warm up. I see them looking at me when I'm scanning around. They're stretching at the red, like red line for like 15 minutes and they're just looking at me. Man, this is this is insane. And yes, Rick, I was nervous every time. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Even when I had a good reputation, when you have a good reputation, it's even worse because yeah. now you have those young kids coming out that want. wants to make a name for themselves exactly. and they all look up to you. Well, so two things along those lines, George. First off, the respect you you, you mentioned you guys have for each other as enforcers and, and guys doing the job that you do and how tough it is, it's it's a code. Is there times that I got two questions here for you again? Is there times where you would not fight a guy if he was injured or too tired while he was discussing this with you? And part number two, how many times did you have to swat away that small guy, like that pain in the ass guy who was just coming to you to try and make himself look better? Well, I I, I was one of the, if you ask any referees in the NHL, in terms of the code, I was one of the most honorable one. Um, I never fought a guy when he was hurt. When I talked to a guy, if he told me that he was hurt, I, I would never do it. During a fight, if somebody got hurt, he told me, George, please stop, I would stop. When a guy was down, I would stop. I didn't try to get an extra punch in. When the referee came in, they knew that often I would stop a fight before the referee even came in when a guy was in trouble. That's how I was, and I was well-respected because of that. And, yeah, there are some guys that, some rookies that would come up to me, ask me to go, but I never said no. I was never one of those veterans that was like, go back to the bench, or some veterans did that. They didn't give the time of the day, and I thought it was a lack of respect because when they were rookies, those veterans, they were going after everyone to make a name for themselves. So as veteran, even though it's not as fun anymore, it's your duty to let this guy give him a chance to make a name for himself. So I would, unless I was hurt, which was rare, I would say yes to everyone. And I would respect, every, I would respect everyone, even the young rookies that would coming up, try to name for themselves with me because I knew, I, I knew what they were doing. That's what I did many years before. So every year I can, because now that I'm established, say like, fuck off, get out, and then just yeah. play my game. And then they go back to the bench, and that's the only shift they played. And they didn't, like, they feel they didn't do their job. They might not play the next game because they didn't do their job because I was cocky. No. If you respect the job, you got to give a chance to those young kids that come up to you. Yeah, see, I'm lucky that, I mean, I had my share of fights, especially in the WHA my, when I was 19. I mean, I had 248 minutes of penalties. Wow. And, but, and I had well over 200 my first three years in the, in the National League. But the only reason I did it was kind of like to get more room and just show people that, hey, I'm not going anywhere. But, you but could, Rick, you could have tried to intimidate me all you can. And we didn't have any tough guys in Toronto. But, so, but Rick, in your, in your time, Rick, you have to be a man to play in the NHL. Because oh, yeah. there's many stars players today, they could never play back in your time. Because back in your time, stars players, sometimes you have to drop the glove. And if you didn't, it yeah. was too bad. You get punched in the face. Game was yeah. way different. It were, the, people like you, star player, have to make room, like you just said. Today, yeah. everybody's protected by referees. The instigator rule, you can hide behind the ref. You don't have to own up to any cheap shot that you do. Uh, everybody's well protected. Yeah. Many of these guys, in your time, Rick, so some of these guys that score 50 goals today, play back in your time, they'd be shitting in their pants. They, they wouldn't even score 10. <laughs> <laughs> now, George, oh. besides yourself, can you, you name you a few guys you care for? Hold on, Mike, Mike I just got to oh, tell you. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. A funny story. So we're playing in Edmonton. 
and the WHA, okay, some ankles on Edmonton, and there's a face-off beside the Edmonton bench, and and Sather starts yapping at me, and and I'm kind of standing there, and he just keeps chirping at me, and I said, hey, I said, why are you chirping at me when you're behind the bench? You don't have any gear on. You can't come out here. So why are you talking to me? So anyway, he says, well, I'm going to send some Enko after you. And I said, okay, go ahead. You know, so anyway, game went on. So I'm back checking on some and it's offside. And we both kind of turn Well, he suckers me. And then he grabs me by the sweater here. My gloves come off and he hits me a couple more times, knocks me out cold. We both get five for fighting because my gloves fell off. <laughs> I go in the dressing room 40 minutes later. I, I kind of remember where I am now. And then we had to go to Winnipeg for a game and then back to Edmonton again. And so we get into that game and the same thing happens. Sather starts yapping at me. I'm going to send semi after you. And I said, okay, go ahead. So he comes in. And I see him coming, and he's going to hit me. And I just get out of the way. He hits the boards, and down he goes. And he didn't wear a helmet. So I just took my stick, and I just gave him a little tap on the head. Whoa. And, and kind of, there was a little bit of blood, not a whole lot. Yeah. So, so I figured, okay, he's either going to kill me, or he's going to leave me alone. But I leaned down, and I said, you ever do that again, I'll cut your head off next time. I swear to God, he never came near me again the rest of my career. Wow. And I'm like, boy, oh, boy, boy. I'm glad I did that. <laughs> hey, actually, Rick, this reminds me of another story. Um, one time I'm playing uh, the Rangers, Mark Messi is there. Mm -hmm. And he's on the side of the board, and I could line him up, and I could nail him. I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to kill Mark Messi. I go, I go to hit him, and without the referee seeing anything, six inches me right in the rib. I couldn't breathe for a week. I never hit him again, ever. I, when I saw him after, I just turned. I was like, I'm not hitting this guy because he didn't care. This, no. If the referee saw the six inches he gave me, he would probably would have had 10 games. Yeah. I was out of breath so much, I thought he broke my rib. For one week, I was swearing his name. I was so much in pain. And I couldn't show that I was in pain because it was Mark Messier. Oh, so, God. you know, I kind of hit the fact that I couldn't breathe, but you're right that there's often there's stars player that, that did justice on their own. And yeah. top guys, we know that we'll never forget it. And well, then we're you like, know you know what? Mean. There's so many stars player in the NHL. This guy is crazy. I'll hit another one. Forget him. Well, so I that's just, probably what Dave thought about you when you did that. Well, I, I just kind of thought, well, I, I'm going to take a chance here because he doesn't know who I am or what I'm capable of doing. Yeah. Exactly. And if if he's going to keep coming after me my entire career, I better do something about it. Yeah. And I figured, what the hell, I'll, I'll try it. And sure enough, and then he came to Toronto to play. And I saw him at, a, at the rink one day, and he came over, and he started talking to me. And, like, we had a good, great conversation. And I'm going, what? Awesome. it didn't ever work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, George, beside yourself, can you name a few guys who carried their role as the enforcer the right way? Oh man, you know, to be honest with you, I'm, and you, you might say this answer is cliche, but I'll say that everyone carries okay. the, the, the role the right way because 
is the toughest job in professional sport. Yeah. To stand on skates and to fight night in and out, you have to be a man. You have to be tough. And some guys were smaller. Like, look at a guy like Taidomi. Yeah. Panfopani was one of the best because he was 5'7", 200 pounds. And he fought guys like me and he did so good. So, yeah. you know, guys that small, how did they do it? How was Tide was able to do it? How was Darren Langdon was able to do it? How were those small guys were able to do it, you know? So, you know, I respected these small guys even more because they gave up so much height and weight that they still did the toughest job. So, you know, I think it's important to say that I respected everyone that did this job because it was not easy for everyone. It was hard. And uh, just to stand there and to do this night in and out, kudos uh, for me. Well, I was referring to guys who maybe would have fought a guy at the end of a shift more than he should have, or you've had already had a fight in the game and he comes after you again when you've already fought and you're tired or take like those type of guys. The, like, well, you know, you know, it does, it did happen a couple of times, but because the job is so hard, I don't even want to show those guys under the bus. I know what you're talking about now. And yeah. it's little incident like this that happened that I'll, I'll use the benefit of the fact that maybe it was the only shift that they had. It's the only opportunity that they had, maybe. Okay. That's fair or, 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 or another one, if they're afraid to get their ass kicked by me, <laughs> it is smart to go after me at the end of a shift. So at least they could survive, right? So uh, I'm still going to say that everyone was honorable and I'm not ready to throw everyone under the bus. Well, okay, how about this one? How about the I fight did... that ever took place with Mike Tyson? Oh, that was a charitable thing. That was not... Um, you know, I, 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 know. I know that I know that I wouldn't stand a chance against any professional boxer in Buck, but it was before COVID, we were standing up a charitable three fight round at Bell Center to raise money for charity. And it was just for fun. And I would just hit him. It was going to be the same exhibition fight that Mohamed Ali had with Dave Semenko in Edmonton mm -hmm. to raise fun for charity. They did a three round thing for fun. So I was just going to do anything for fun with Mike. And I would just make sure I wouldn't hit him too hard. So he doesn't get mad and try to hit, to, to, and try to knock me out, because he's so crazy that if I get Mike Tyson out, for sure he's gonna knock me out. Because you know, as good as a fighter as I was on the ice, I don't have boxing background, and then it's it's a different sport. So yeah. I wouldn't stand a chance. It was just to raise money for charity, and then that's it. But it was never that was not to claim at any time that I thought I was better than him, because there's no way. Yeah, well, I can tell you one thing, George, is as a guy that played like I did, you know, I we all I, I had the utmost respect for the guys that did your job. Unfortunately, we didn't have that many guys in Toronto while I was there. Um, or, in, well, in Chicago, we had Dave Manson. So, yeah, I, I guess he fits yeah. into that category. Um, but, I mean, I always thought, you know what, I, I don't know how these guys do it. I, I just... Like, I mean, that their job is, is tougher than mine. And, my, it's, and I, I always really, really thought that there were special people that did that. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, George, the best compliment you ever received from a teammate? Um, actually, how about I'll give you something better than that. Okay. When I scored my only hat trick in the NHL, uh, when you talk about the best compliment, there's a special player that called me. He called me in a dress room and he said, George, you only need 49 more to break my record. Who was it? Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. 
<laughs> that, that right there, that was unreal. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it when I got my hat trick in Edmonton. So uh, that was just awesome, man. I'll, I, I, this is something that I'll never forget. And you know what? Talking about Wayne, where they got COVID two years ago, he's one of the first person that called me to wish me good recovery. So talking about the world-class player, best player in the history of the, the game, um, you know, those are... Those two instances that I just told you is something that I will never forget. Well, that's pretty good. Well, I got that's the, a pretty good story. I got to play with Wayne in the World Championships and three All-Star games. And I got to tell you, he was unbelievable to be around. And a funny story, we're in, uh, we're, we're in Finland, Helsinki. And there's a little bar around a couple of blocks away from our hotel. Well, we go in there the first night and there's nobody there. And, you know, Wayne's with us, and the whole team is there. The next night, uh, there's a few more people. And then I think they realized that Wayne Gretzky was going there. And the next thing you know, the place is packed. <laughs> and everybody's asking Wayne for his autograph and everything. So, but he, you know what? He was a wonderful person, and he, he didn't you know, walk away you from know, signing any autographs or anything. You know, we have something similar to me and Rick and Mike. Rick played with Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. I played with Wayne on my PlayStation. <laughs> <laughs> I put him on my line. I put him on my line. <laughs> That's the only way that I could play with him. Right now, at the world stage, and I did it in video games. <laughs> right now, George, uh, you know, your charity work is well known and you're very well regarded in Edmonton and Montreal, where all you've done all this work. But there's one I got to ask about. There's a documented one with you wearing a bridal gown for a pride event. Now, how did they talk you into doing that one? Yeah, that was uh, over there. Yeah, that was uh, um, that was uh, a drag queen contest, and um, that was uh, they asked me if I because every year I did the pride parade in in Montreal. Okay, and you know the fight for inclusion is so important, and I'm the type of guy that. You know, if I'm going to do something, I'm just going to do it with word. I'm going to do it with action. So it was at the, uh, it was at a park, a big park in Montreal during the Pride Parade. They did a drag competition and asked me if I'd be part of it. And I said, of course. So they dressed me as, as you saw there. And it was a lip sync thing. I, I lip sync Whitney Houston. I would always love you. And uh, we, th there's a couple celebrity that did a special number. And I wanted to win so bad that what I did at the end of that number after I lip sync Whitney Houston, is that I told I told a gay guy in the backstage to jump on my arms and I kissed him because I wanted to win, and I and I won that competition, and people were in shock that I did that, and uh, and then when I won the competition, I give the money back to the to the Pride organization, and people went nuts, and it went it went it went viral, it went all over the world, but I didn't care, I just wanted to win. I was like, if I'm gonna do this, if I won't have an impact. For, for in the pride parade i have to win this competition and i did and then that dress that i bought because it's a it's a real wedding dress that i bought for the lady it's a, there's an oversized wedding dress that store in montreal that i have to get it from and then i give it back to the organization they auctioned it off to raise more money to fight for uh, to, towards homophobia and stuff but it's just that there's so many charitable things that that i do that in terms of action what is battle of the blades present to, to fight against stigma against guys that wants to do figure skating and people say that it's gay and i wanted to do it to show everyone that it's that sports is for everyone right i like like be present in action different charitable thing and to to give example by by 
by being present, put your energy into something, not just talking. Talking, yep. send a message in social media, say you support this, is easy. You want to back something for real, do it. Participate in it. Put your life, sweat, and energy, and yeah. show everyone that, you know what? Like, I support this cause, and it's so important. Well, George, I can tell you, you're very much like my youngest boy. Uh, he backs out 100%. In fact, Brian Burke's son, uh, Brendan, who passed away in a car accident, Yeah, he was a student manager for Miami, Ohio, when my son was at school there. And the team knew he was gay. And I, I didn't find this out until years later. Brian told me, apparently one of the guys made a comment in the dressing room about why do we have a gay manager? And I guess my son went up to him and grabbed him. And he said, you say one more word about Brendan like that, and I will knock you out. And, wow. And then, because he was friends with Brendan, like he lived with, my, my son lived with three guys in the house. And every Sunday, they'd invite Brendan over, and they'd cook a bunch of food. They'd watch football on Sundays because they only played Friday, Saturday, right? Yeah. And, uh, and they became very, very close friends. And I'll be honest with you, it's the first time. I went to the funeral in Boston. They flew the whole team in for the funeral. My son was the last one out of the, the pew, and he put his hand on the casket. And when he turned around, it was the first time I ever saw my son cry. Wow. And that meant a lot to me because I know how passionate he was about Brendan yeah. and, and, you know, how we saw him as a person and how we saw everybody as people, you know. And, yeah. and so I, I love my son for a lot of different reasons, but especially for that because yeah. he's very wow. very people like that and and he'll yeah. stick up for them. Now now after that, that's a, that's quite a good story. And I've heard that before, Squid, so that's great. And I do he is a, a terrific kid. Um now George, speaking of advice and helping people, talk about this. It wasn't a dating show, but was there a, a, a George LaRock like love advice radio show you had at Edmonton? <laughs> yeah, well you know you know I've done radio all my career. Like I'm a radio show as you said earlier yeah. in Montreal every day. But in Mon in Edmonton, what happened is I was I, I was doing a it was a relationship show that people would like call in with relationship advice, and believe it or not, it was the number one rating show in Edmonton because it was so entertaining for people to listening to to callers calling me asking for love advice, and I was like and I was like I, I had so much fun in my early career in the NHL that I thought I was the best one to give love advice because. I was playing the field so much as a kid, man. When you start playing NHL, the experience that you live, that you have, man, ask me any situation, I've lived it, right? So uh, it became so big that eventually the team asked me to stop doing it because it was too much of a distraction. That's what everybody talked about. In the dressing room, guys were talking about calls that I had with a couple of people about, hey, how about this girl when she called about this, this guy called about that. It was, it, it was insane. But man, I loved it, man. I just... I've always been a guy that was never afraid of trying things or doing things. And the manager of that radio station was just like, George, what would you feel about doing a relationship advice show? And I was like, let's do it. And it worked. It was insane. <laughs> and then I never, I never stopped doing radio since then. When I went to Phoenix, Pittsburgh, everywhere I went, 
I did radio, and then when I retired, it was just natural that I would continue having my own radio show. Oh, wow. Well, I was also going to ask you about this other one. Have you heard about this? You know, the day you've heard about the Danbury Trashers, the, uh, the documentary yeah. they did. Are you kidding me? Of course I have. Listen to this story. First of all, I, I've talked to, uh, to, uh, to that guy many times, to the GM of that team. A, uh, a Galanti. Yeah, Galanti. I talked to him many times, and he told me at the, at the lockout, he tried to get me. He tried to get me at the lockout and stuff. So he sent me a jersey, and then, uh, you know, he, he asked me if I wanted to be part of his ice war competition that That's he did ask in Edmonton. I was like, uh, no, I don't like fighting enough to do something like that. I'm not crazy enough. Um, you know, and, and you, know, it, you know, I did fighting for a living in the NHL to, for my dream to play there, but there's no way I take part of something like this ever. I have no interest in the fighting, and, and, and I don't understand, quite understand why would somebody want to do that for the danger of it, right? But again, I know it's entertaining and some people would like to watch it, but no, I've, I have a few exchanges with Gladi and, and he's a funny guy, he's an awesome guy. And we exchange so many stories. Uh, I know some of the guys that played for him and stuff and told me some crazy stories about how crazy they were back then, back in these days. So it, it was like a, a, real, a true Slapshot movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Slapshot was not real. Danbury was real, and well, was crazy. but but again, there was no. As I told them, there's no money in this world that would have got me in a lockout to go play there, because yeah. it's it's too crazy. I went to play in Sweden during the lockout to skate and prove, like to skate more to get ready for the next year. Playing in Danbury would have not would have not helped me during the lockout. <laughs> to be back in Edmonton the year after. That's well. What sure. about that Quebec League? The the crazy Quebec League. No, no, no that's even worse. That Quebec League is the same thing. It was nuts. People want steroid in there. It was just fighting. I had zero interest in playing that league. Also, it was kind of similar to what that yeah, was. That's and again, sure. you know, no way, man. There's no way. I'm not gonna go risk my life or fight in a league that is meaningful and then I get hurt so I can't do my job in the NHL the year after. No, I was not about to take that chance. I didn't like fighting enough to join a league like that. No. Well, the I watched that the trasher thing, the the uh, thing on I don't know if it was on Netflix. Netflix on Netflix, crime and penalties yeah. on Netflix. Yeah, and it's that's pretty it. entertaining. I mean, uh, yeah, it was. I'm on a the spit and checklist where he said, you know, at one time he said my father just sent a check for like ten thousand dollars to the commissioner and said. Just keep this, he said, for the next suspension. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or they, uh, or they paid. Um, oh, who? Um, what's his face? Rob. Uh, they, Rob, Mike yeah, Rob. They him, yeah, they paid him cash in bags. Yeah. yeah. Actually, a friend of mine, a friend of mine, David Beauregard, he, he's a one. They, they called him the One Eye Willie in the team. Uh, goal scorer in there. He's a really close friend of mine when he played for for them, and he said they were getting paid cash. But when this whole thing happened, that they got cut and they got closed. Uh, the IRS went after everyone that paid cash and they have to pay money. Oh, so no. they have to pay a lot of tax. Yeah, yeah, they have to pay tax about all the cash that they, they received. They had no choice. Now, uh, George, oh, you've been boy. fantastic with us. I mean, we really appreciate you giving us our time. So, Scooby, just got him for a couple of minutes if he doesn't mind hanging on. What, what I'd like to ask you, George, is this. Now, you're very outgoing and very funny guy and popular. Uh, were you a bit of a prankster during your playing time? Yes, I was always. Now, always. Any, uh, any you can share with us that you got guys with, and was anybody brave enough to get you back? Uh, yeah, because I was always, I, I was always a guy that loved to joke around, right? I, I was always like, I would always play fight with all the guys all the time, 
and then two three guys would jump me all the time like <laughs> stuff like this all the time and I, I was a prankster like every every day i was a guy that was laughing that was finding ways to make people laugh and stuff because that's the way that i was and the reason why i was like that is because the pressure of fighting was so high that i had to laugh i had to do something else to get the anxiety out of my body yep so that's why i would joke around while i was joking around in my mind i was like thinking about the fight that i might have the next day <laughs> so i was joking around even more to maybe for that two three minutes i wouldn't think about it and when a joke was done i'd be back again in the mode Fuck. Okay, I gotta... <laughs> it was insane so i needed that that humor just to forget about it to, to feel human again to to laugh to have fun because when it was too quiet when guys would focus before the game i think about the guy that i might have to face so that's so why so the, I would joke around all the time to, to, to just to feel normal, I guess. What was the best prank you ever saw? It's crazy because the best prank I've ever done, I can't say it on the air because it's too, it is, the guys that were involved in it, um, they would be mad at me if I said it <laughs> because it's too, it, it is nuts. It is the best ever. And I, I would tell you guys off the air, but on the air, I can't. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I'll tell you after on the off the air you're gonna go crazy. But I can't on the air because he's gonna he's gonna have a heart attack if I say it like that. But <laughs> the best I'll I'll of that prank that I would do the best one I guess would be like you know like switching rooms uh, with other people like normal people like other people than teammates that you go in the wrong room uh, wedding beds uh, putting guy suit in a shower filling up a guy's car with popcorn, you know, filled everywhere, like little things like this to rookies that I would do. Um, and I, I don't want to say the, the, the guy that actually I could, I could, okay. I'll, I'll tell you one guy that, that I used to pick on a lot when he was rookie, it was Christopher Latin. So, uh, if he's hearing this, you'll know that a lot of prank that was done to him was done by me because I, I think that they still doesn't know that it was me that did a lot of that stuff to him. But uh, no, I just, I was a prankster. I loved it. And I, it kept me uh, a kid, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I've always felt even today, I'm a kid in a man's body and I love to have fun. And when I played, I was the same way. Now, uh, who got you? What, who got worst, you? The worst got one. You? That, uh, the, best, the best one is Brian Marchman. When sitting in a plane, commercial plane, um, I was, I was sleeping when I was in a plane. He cut my tie when I was sleeping and he put shaving cream on my head. So... I had a I had an afro back then, and then I didn't know when you put chivy cream on an afro, it takes a while before it trickles down your head and you feel it, right? So when I woke up, everybody in the plane was looking at me. They were laughing at me. So I kind of look, and I saw my tie is cut, and I was like, okay, I better untuck my tie when I was sleeping. That's fine. So I took it off. But people kept laughing at me the entire flight. It's like I'm looking at myself. Why are they laughing? Why are they laughing? Just before we land, I feel something in my head like triggering. It's like wet. Because finally, the, the shaved cream like kind of melted and it went to my head. I put my hand on it and then the whole plane kind of burst. So Brian Marchman <laughs> got me. That was probably the best prank because it was witnessed by an entire commercial flight that was full while I was sitting in the middle. My hands full of whipped cream and then I was the rookie and I was like, man, he got me. And then I got to watch it before I fall asleep again. Well, I saw a few of those uh, shaving cream ones too, but the worst one, yeah. the one that 
was probably the best that ever happened to me was at the world championships in uh, Finland and Bernie Nichols was on the team. So Bernie went to the get and he got a key to my room. I had my own room because we had a odd number of guys and I snored pretty loud. So they gave me my own room. So it's a game day. So we just ate our game pregame meal. I go to my room, you know, you, you get undressed, you go to the bathroom. I'm sitting on the toilet and all of a sudden the shower curtain opens and he just screams. And it was like, I almost had a heart attack. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. It was like, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey George, I don't know if Squid's telling the truth there because uh, Wendell Clark and uh, Gary Lehman and uh, Russ Courtnell told us they got him one time because they used to do the shoe oh, trick. The shoe you know, trick. Yeah. And he had yeah, the brand new pair of uh, blue suede shoes or whatever he had on these high end shoes, and they got him twice, and he went nuts. You get oh my god, <laughs> for these fucking shoes for it. Who got me with that? And then they waited to the next night and got him again. Yeah, he was, he was ready to kill somebody. Yeah, those kids, those kids, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, anyway, listen, George, we, we want to thank you so much for your time. Any final thoughts you had before you go? Yes. Uh, to all the Leaf fans that are watching, uh, I hope uh, before you guys, uh, in your time that you're alive, that you see the Leaf passing the first round. That's what I hope for all the Leaf fans watching right now. Just pass the first round one time before you thanks, pass George, thanks George for that by the way <laughs> that's very nice you, George thanks very much all right now we got you on the spot here okay you know what how about this the Battle of Alberta explain to the Easterners how intense and how serious that battle Ooh. is actually going to be you know uh I haven't met in seven uh I'm afraid of two things dry saddles ankle and Mark Strum versus Smith um they have the advantage in net, obviously. Um, dry saddle is health. Knowing Sutter, talking about Battle of Alberta, Sutter is going to say every shift, finish your check on dry saddle. I don't want him to finish the series. I think they're going to be more physical on him than the Kings were because they know he's hurt. The more physical is going to be, the more to the base yep. of the Flames is going to be because without dry saddle, Connor could win games on his own, but the Flames, uh, more firepower than the Kings. So yeah. Smith's going to have to be better every game not just game six and seven so my heart's with edmonton i know it's going to be hard but in make jesus we trust and on that note listen we want to thank you so much for what you've done for today you're fantastic uh, all the best to you going forward i'm going to come over and say hi to you at the sport expo in, awesome. in a couple of weeks look forward to having a chat with you and listen thanks so much for joining us today yeah thanks for having me again and rick uh, uh, see you in the next uh, charitable event on the ice Perfect, George. Thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate hey, it. George.